Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. Welcome to The Interpreter Radio Show. This is Bruce Webster with Martin Tanner, and we think Chris Fredrickson. Are you there, Chris? I'm here. Can you hear me? We can hear you, yes. All right, let's move on to our next topic, which is a question that many astute readers of the Book of Mormon have. And that is, well, how did King James English... How did King James verses wind up in the Book of Mormon? And the answer to that question to many people uh, sends you down a long series of, of um, questions. For instance, well, did Joseph Smith just read Isaiah in the Book of Mormon as he was dictating it? And the answer seems to be no. All the witnesses... Uh, to the translation process, which would basically be the scribe at the time the Isaiah variants were were being um, dictated by Joseph Smith, said he didn't use anything. He didn't use any other books or references. As a matter of fact, the plates themselves were covered. And so he was doing the entire dictation of, of the Book of Mormon purely by the inspiration of God. And then the question becomes, and, and some critics raise this, and, but, but it turns out to be a, a faithful thing. And, and I'll parenthetically add here that I love to dive in to critics' questions and, and questions that people have in the church. And every t- and I've been doing this for, you know, 30-plus years. And every single time I do that, it will turn out to be a very positive thing for one's testimony. If you do a superficial dive, you might come up short because you'll see critical things and you'll go, oh, no. It's, but if you keep going and try to find responses to critics, every single time in the Isaiah passages in the Book of Mormon is a true example of that. Because the critics say, "Oh, Joseph Smith, he just you know plagiarized the Book of Mor- or the Bible and just threw it in the Book of Mormon." And not only that, he even goofed up because some of the things that he took from Isaiah are changed. And as I think about that, I think, well, let's see. When he does it exactly the same, he's plagiarizing. But if he changes it, then he's goofed up, you know. And he's, <laughs> I, you can't have it both ways. And one of the questions that comes up is, why would God inspire Joseph Smith uh, to, by the gift and power of God, use King James English in the Book of Mormon? That doesn't seem so intuitive to us today because, you know, gosh, why not the NIV the Chris mentioned? Why, why not the... Contemporary English version, the New Revival, why not any of these others? Well, the answer is they weren't around when the Book of Mormon was translated. The other answer is that in the 
era when the Book of Mormon was translated, by far and away, the translation was the King James Bible. Of course, there are many others. Um, you know, the Great Bible, Tyndale's Bible. Wycliffe. Wycliffe, yep, John Wycliffe or Wycliffe, depending on whether you're a tomato or tomato. But there, there were a whole bunch of them, and uh, none of them had a sliver of the amount of popularity as the King James Bible. And so if you didn't have King James quotes in the Book of Mormon, it would be a little bit like somebody standing up in Sunday school when they're asked to read something from Isaiah, and they come up with Theodore Gaster's translation from the Dead Sea Scrolls Isaiah, which sounds really odd to people who are used to biblical um, biblical Isaiah. And so it's the natural text. What other text would you prefer? If you're saying that that's inappropriate or not right, what other text would you use? And I think the obvious answer would be there are none. And... Um, I wanted to also, with, with that short little introduction to, to the nature of, of the issue, give a couple of fabulous sources that go into far more depth than I could in a short little overview on this subject. And I'm going to go sort of um, in reverse order on these. One is part of the BYU study series, and it's absolutely terrific. Um, and... <laughs> Actually, I'm saying this backwards. Let me use the other one first. The farms, the Foundation for Ancient Research and Mormon Studies, back when it really had that name, uh, published a book called Isaiah in the Book of Mormon. And it was a series of essays that were edited by Don Perry and Jack Welch, John W. Welch. And the essays in here are just wonderful. They explain... The context of Isaiah and the Book of Mormon, keys to understanding Isaiah, Isaiah variants, because all the Isaiah quotes in the Book of Mormon aren't exactly King James. There are, as I'll mention in a minute, uh, a whole bunch that, ha that have some minor variants in them. But this overview that uh, Perry and Welch put together through a series of articles is just spectacular. It's really, really wonderful, and it's a great resource for understanding the Isaiah in the Book of Mormon. Now, if you want to get specifically to the issue that the critics bring up, which is Isaiah variants in the Book of Mormon, the best by far uh, source on that, in my personal private opinion, is something that came out clear back in 1984. And the author, John Tevetnis, oh. who has departed us uh, and made us sad, a, a wonderful scholar. And this was one of his works that I found not too long after he wrote it, and I was just in awe of it. Uh, and, and the source for this is... The Religious Studies Brigham Young Center, 1984, and it starts on page 165 for those who care. You can also find it on the Internet. But here's the gist of, of what he does. He analyzes 
every single one of the 478 verses in the Book of Mormon quoted from Isaiah. And he comes away and tells you that 201 of those 478 exactly agree with the King James. 207 show some variations, and the other 58 are paraphrased. And so if you look at his study, he goes through and evaluates each one of these. He goes through all of them in their categories, and it's just wonderful. One of the things that critics will say is, oh, well, modern scholarship has has said that uh, Joseph Smith uh, put Isaiah errors, there are errors in the King James Bible, and, and Joseph Smith transferred those into the Book of Mormon, and if you've got an error in the King James Bible, God wouldn't do that. Well, there are a number of fallacies in those kinds of arguments. The major one is, well, how do you know these scholars that say that it's an error know what they're talking about? You know, every 20 years, the nature of scholarship changes, and those claims, the underlying assumption to them, is that all modern scholars will say that these are errors. And it's just not true. It is just not true. There are a number of scholars that think the way the Book of Mormon has the King James Isaiah quotes is accurate. And one of the things that Tavetness shows, and this is such a positive thing, and I rarely hear it mentioned, is that Tavetness shows that in many, many, many instances, it is now demonstrable that the minor variants that Joseph Smith included in the Isaiah text in the Book of Mormon are actually more accurate when compared with things that he didn't even have available, like the Dead Sea Scrolls Isaiah and some of the other manuscripts that, that have come to light since, uh, since the time of Joseph Smith and when he tr- translated the Book of Mormon clear back in 1829 and 30. So this is something that's, that if you take a deep dive into it, will turn out to be incredibly faith-building. You will find that the Book of Mormon is inspired to be more accurate than the King James Bible, not less, and that many of the claims made by critics are just unfounded. And so I highly recommend both of these, Isaiah and the Book of Mormon, edited by Perry and Welch, and also John Tavetness, a wonderful work called Isaiah Variants in the Book of Mormon. And, and by the way, you don't have to buy those, both of those. You just Google, search for them, and they'll pop right up, and, and uh, you can find them and read them. I, I just actually have one thing to add before I'll pass over to Chris for commentary. Uh, in the Doctrine and Covenants preface, uh, section one, which was a preface given to the Book of Commandments, where it says something very interesting, and, and it's good to interpret this verse in the light of the fact that there is so much King James language in the Doctrine and Covenants, including a lot, a lot of Isaiah and Revelation terminology. Uh, the Lord says, <clears throat> the, whoops, it scrolled down, da, 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 all right. Uh, 
Oh, there we go. Verse 24. Sorry. My, my, my iPad had scrolled. Behold, I am God and have spoken it. These commandments are of me and were given unto my servants in their weakness after the manner of their language that they might come to understanding. It's exactly the point that Martin was making. The Lord used the language that they were familiar with. Uh, does it mean that King James is a perfect translation? Uh, doesn't mean King James is necessarily... Well, there are problems with King James, but there's problems with all translations. Translation is always a human effort. Uh, but the point is, is that the Lord works with us in our weakness and uses language with which we're familiar. And I fully agree with Martin that if there is an attempt to, you know, give a, quote, modern... Uh, <laughs> rendition of quotes from Isaiah or, uh, or this, you know, the Sermon at the Temple to the extent that it extends or uh, parallels the Sermon on the Mount, it would have been rejected for exactly that reason. That's my two cents there. Chris, your thoughts on all this? And, and we're, we've got just a nope. couple minutes here before we need to move to the next yeah. block. Yeah, really very little, and I just want to reiterate what you were just talking about. It's just in the language of their day. Uh, Joseph Smith, when he's writing the Book of Mormon, he's familiar with idioms from his day. Mm -hmm. He certainly has seen patterns. I mean, we certainly find, excuse me, in the Book of Mormon, as, you know, he is um, translating it or actually, you know, listening to the Holy Ghost and writing down what the Lord would have him write down. But we certainly do see many language patterns that are reflective of ancient Israel or, you know, the time of Lehi and what was going on. Um, in ancient Israel, as they fled that land, they brought that understanding with them. But what you see is you see Joseph Smith working with the language of his day and making sure that what he is writing is comfortable to the people that are reading it. You know, just the introduction alone where it talks about hefting the plates. That's a very good example. That's not something you're going to find in biblical language, but you certainly are going to find it in 19th century language. And you're not really going to find it at all in our day because it's not in use any longer. And so we have to understand that, you know, um, part of the translation process as well. Okay, on to our next block before we hit the top of the hour. Uh, in light of these issues, the church has formulated a new institute class called Answering My Gospel Questions, Religious 280, Religion 280. Uh, they have a manual, teacher's manual for this, and... It is the culmination of uh, efforts that the church has been making for a good 20 to 30 years to basically set out more rigorously a way to address concerns from people, uh, members of the church, who uh, you know drink lightly from that Pyrian spring, <laughs> are intoxicated thereby. And fail to drink deeply, sobering themselves up again, as per as per uh, Martin's comments. Uh, the you know, in my own case, I, I joined as I've said before here. I joined the church at age fourteen. Only member in my family started high school that fall. A few months later, and relatively soon had well-meaning friends handing me anti-Mormon literature. Uh, and my reaction to that was, well, this is interesting because I I had had a rep very profound spiritual witness of the reality of the, the restoration and that this is the Lord's church and so on and so forth, I thought, I guess I need to learn more. Uh, and this is really where I started, 
you know, reading deeply in church history in the New Testament. Uh, those were my main focus. As I've said before, I didn't, I'm ashamed to say I did not read the Book of Mormon all the way through until my freshman year of college when I took uh, Book of Mormon from Chauncey Riddle, which was a great class uh, and very eye-opening for me. But this talks about some <clears throat> key issues that needs to be approached. And, and, and this is what I want to say. When I hear people get upset about things, about, oh, I never knew this, or the church was hiding this, or I didn't do this, you know, my, my initial reaction, I, I think this is probably a, a lot of what, what Martin and Chris will echo, Chris will echo, it's like, well, wait, I've known that for like 40 years. I mean, what, where have you been? Uh, it's, I mean, the example which we've talked about before here in a radio show is, you know, church hid that Joseph Smith was a polygamist. And I'm like, really? That was in my seminary textbook when I was in high school 50 years ago. Uh, it was in B.H. Roberts, Comprehensive History of the Church. We talked about it in priesthood meeting because this was our big point of difference between us and the reorganized church, which was the thing. There's actually a, a branch, a congregation, the reorganized church in La Mesa where, where I lived. And it's like, yeah, they, they claim that Joseph never practiced or taught polygamy, and we all know he did. And so I'm, I'm baffled by some of the people, things that people say, you know, they, they've, they've been hiding this. It's like, no, they haven't. You know, it's like the seer stone. I've, I've known about the seer stone for decades. It's like, this is, this is not something new. This is not something hidden. Uh, and it comes, we're back to the theological literates. It comes to the fact that a lot of the members of the church are very casual in their approach to gospel study. And, and there's, there's sort of an inherent conflict here because it's kind of like, well, you know, do I have to be a scholar to have a testimony of the church? No, but it is significant, and this was, I just saw an updated chart on this. Uh, this is something that's been well known for about uh, 40 years, and because of a new educational initiative, I saw it. Activity and faithfulness in the church is directly proportional to the level of education. The Pew Research polling which is fabulous, by the way, they, they focus on religious issues, comes out with some studies and, and polls that echo exactly what you're saying, that the people in our church who are the very most educated are the very most active. Yeah. Now, conversely, the opposite is true in, to the best of my knowledge, all other Christian denominations. The more educated you are, the less likely you are to be active. The other fascinating thing that Pew Research polls have shown is that Latter-day Saints know their scriptures much more than Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox uh, members. And that is a little bit sad for the other denominations, but to me is also a little bit frightening because <laughs> as, as we're all discussing, we hope that people in the church will be a little bit more literate uh, and study a bit more because really nobody knew about polygamy, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah. I, it's just, it's just almost incomprehensible. 
and you would not expect to hear everything in Sunday school. Really? You know, one hour a week or now every other week, you're going to learn it all? God, yeah. do a little study on your own. Yeah, that's that point. Chris? <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm going to jump in on the study on your own because this is something that I've kind of beat the drum to death on. But I think it's it's critical mass in the day and age in which we live is that um, we make sure that a study of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the foundation upon and, and the lens through which we view practices and doctrines in the rest of the world to help us discern what is truth and what is error. And let me give you just a real practical example of what I think is happening. And I think, you know, there's two things that we see in the church. We see young people who are eager learners, and they do want to know, and they do have questions, and that's exciting. I mean, Joseph Smith went into the sacred grove because he had a question, and he took it directly to his Father in Heaven. Now, that's a good example before us of one way to do it, to go to your Father in Heaven in prayer. But then, of course, Joseph Smith was also at the same time a student of the Scriptures, he was, it looks like he was involved in Methodist study classes, and he was involved in that great awakening, all the different religious uh, discussions that were taking place at that period of time. So he was doing a good, you know, portion of both of those things. But he had questions, and he took them to his father in heaven, and he took them to the scriptures so that he could better understand, and that's what drove him into the sacred grove. If you like wisdom, ask God. Give it to all men liberally and upright not. And so he did. He took that at its word. And that's what we need to do today, and that's what young people and every member of the church and every good, you know, gospel scholar, those who really want to know the purpose of this life and everything and reason behind what we do and why we do what we do, is to study the scriptures. But here's the perfect example of when we don't do that, when we don't use the scriptures. You know, I always told my students in my history classes, you're going to read a lot of documents. You're going to read Karl Marx. You're going to read Osama bin Laden, you're going to read Adolf Hitler, you're going to read Mengele, you're going to read Erasmus, you're going to read, you know, Martin Luther, you're going to read all of these individuals. But I told them in my BYU classes, but the foundation for discerning truth from error is a study of the scriptures, and then you can just take those different writings and you can weigh them against the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's much easier for you to jettison that which is fallacious and embrace that which is truth. And so our perfect example is found in Alma 30. Alma 30 is where we have Korahor, and he's an antichrist, of course, and he's preaching to the Nephites and the Ammonites. Now, what's interesting is the Nephites listen, and many of them embrace what he has to say. The Ammonites are like, we're done with you, and they just throw him out. They don't even want to hear what he has to say. They're firm and steadfast in their faith, and I would suggest in their understanding of the doctrine. But in Alma 30.25, it says, this is Korahor himself, Ye say this people is a guilty and a fallen people because of the transgression, transgressions of a parent. Behold, I say that a child is not guilty because of its parents. And then you go back to Alma 30:18, and thus he did preach unto them, leading away the hearts of many, causing them to lift up their heads in wickedness. And then, of course, leading men and women to commit whoredoms, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, I always would post that to my. I always would post to my students, "What's the problem here?" And the problem here is that what he is alleging is that we believe in original sin, and of course. Even a primary child knows from the article of faith number two that men will be punished for their own sins and not for Adam's transgressions. We do not believe in the doctrine of original sin, but because 
the Nephites at that time were not conversant with the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Clearly, they were easily deceived. And so we need to know the doctrine. So when people come to us and say, for instance, we hate homosexuals, that's a lie. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ and hate your fellow human beings. It's simply not conscionable, nor is it in keeping with the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what we must do is we must understand the doctrine, and we say that, you know, Heavenly Father has framed um, the idea of homosexual marriage and homosexuality within the proclamation on the family, and we can study and we can learn from that. And it's inherent that we love our fellow human beings, although we might take umbrage and we might see their practices and some of their choices as sinful, that disallows them from a close relationship with the Savior, Jesus Christ, and the Savior wants them to come close to him. And so that's the first thing. The second thing I would suggest is, you know, is um, in this study, for young people today, young adults today, whoever it might be, and I think this would probably be a really good manual for all of us, you know, to kind of study and to write down those questions we have and then do the due diligence, do the research in the scriptures and the words of living prophets and apostles today. But I was at my um, children's primary program today. I'm down here in Arizona. And it was uh, a beautiful program, Testimonies of the Kids, um, related to Old Testament stories that they were familiar with and the teachings in the Old Testament, and that was interspersed with primary songs. And I would suggest that one of the best ways to learn the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to read through the primary songs. Now, let me just tell you the songs that were sung today. Follow the prophet, okay? Follow the prophet, follow the prophet, follow the prophet. He knows the way. And this is what we believe as members of the church. We believe that President Nelson at this time is a prophet of God, that he speaks and he expresses the mind and will of the Savior, Jesus Christ, to us today. He's a prophet, he's a seer, and he is a revelator. Second song they sang was Scripture Power. Scripture Power, you know, it talks about how it provides a shield and protection against the false teachings in the world today. And it's a beautiful little song that the kids sang today. The next song that they sang, I'm trying to be like Jesus. There it is. You can't do Jesus Christ until you know Jesus Christ. So you've got to know the teachings of Jesus Christ, and then you can try to become like the Savior, Jesus Christ. So there's that beautiful little kid's song, trying to be like Jesus Christ. Next song, families can be together forever. Sort of a small, you know, brief encapsulation, again, of the proclamation on the family. And then the next song was Keep the Commandments. And, you know, how beautiful is that? It's important that if we start to have questions, if, if we're challenged by certain practices that we see um, as uh, inappropriate or inaccurate or wrong or whatever it might be, keep living the commandments of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then they sing, I hope they call me on a mission. And then they sing, I will be valiant. So, you know, those primary songs, they're just loaded with powerful doctrines, simply put. That's a really great way to begin your study of um, the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to that point, and, and, and something else, uh, and this is, this is something I know both of you appreciate, you know, when a lot of these questions and issues get raised, we, we look around and say, oh, yeah, so-and-so addressed that, you know, like John Tavednis in 1984. Uh, there is a tremendous, a tremendous body of very scholarly literature 
addressing just about every major issue like this. And you know, unless you actually, even when you, if you want to dive into theology and you know profound philosophical questions, uh, there are some great writings by uh, highly qualified and very insightful uh, Latter Day Saint scholars on these subjects. Uh, Truman Madsen's book Eternal Man had a profound impact on me uh, as a teenager because he set forth a he set forth the fact that the in our understanding of the gospel there are approaches if not answers or at least approaches to some of the hardest philosophical questions that we face and people just they they don't realize we we live in a golden age of gospel resources you know i've i've been collecting books for over 50 years uh but now I carry around in Gospel Library, you know, in the Gospel Library app, there is such a profound amount of information, and we're talking detailed scholarly information. You know, we're not talking uh, Sunday school lessons, so of course they're, they're there. We're, we're talking about very serious, referenced, footnoted discussions of, of uh, controversial and difficult gospel topics. It doesn't do any good if you don't read them. Uh, and I've, I've, I've mentioned this before, and I'll, I'll say this briefly because we're going to get cut up here, and I'll want to give some more time to Martin. I find that a lot of these struggles is sort of a form of what I like to call a lesser theodicy. Uh, theodicy is, of course, if a God is all-powerful, why is there evil in the world? And we as Latter-day Saints feel very self-satisfied with our answers, as well we should. But for a lot of Latter-day Saints, it's like if, if God is perfect and this is his church, why does X happen in the church? And that's, that's where they stumble. Uh, and church leaders have been very frank. You know, church leaders are human. Uh, the, church is, the, the church is the Lord's church, but it's, it's up to us. And Often members don't bother to go past that. What it really is, it's sort of like, well, in my opinion, if this is God's church, then X should happen or Y should never happen. Uh, without, again, addressing the actual information or documents, that, that the documentation that talks about these issues. Martin, I'll leave it, give it to you until we hit the top of the hour. Sure. One of the things that is also important to do, because many people might see an issue or a question and they don't know where to go to find the answer and they maybe poke around or look around and they still can't find the answer a good way to approach that is to set it on the shelf and wait to see if you can find the answer bh roberts was a great example of that in his era and he, and he was one of the great scholars of, of the early 20th century, he was actually, I mean, there's a backstory that I don't have time to tell, but, but he was asked to do a study of the Book of Mormon. He produced a book called Problems of the Book of Mormon, and people hear the title, and they go, oh, and, and the truth was that there were a number of things that he couldn't answer and he couldn't figure out that seemed like anomalies or things that shouldn't be there. And fascinatingly enough, if you look at the problems today, you would kind of smile at all of them and say, we know the answer to that now. And, and so 
if B.H. Roberts had done what some people do today and see an issue they can't instantly resolve, we would have lost him. He would have been a general authority. There would have been no scholarship. He would have maybe not even believed in God or Christianity. It would have been a horrible result. He suspended that question until he could find the right answer, and it was to his benefit and millions of other people that he did that, and to every institute student or gospel doctrine class student who has the same questions, try doing that, because almost everything that you have a question about will be answered or has been answered, and there is a place where you can find it, even if you don't know right now what it might be. And and so... Um, this is sort of a variation on the idea of, you know, question your beliefs or question your questions more than you question your beliefs. We'll be back on the other side of the news. Stay tuned. This is the Interpreter Radio Show. 